Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back live once again, joined, as always, by Jeff Copsetta. And if things come to fruition here momentarily, we will be joined by guest host, Mr. Dennis Blocker II. That's the type of name you can't put on a mailbox in front of a shack that's that's a name destined for success right there jeff how you doing tonight sir <laughs> good how are you you know i used to say because my grandfather's name was donald preston abernathy the second but then he skipped the generation with my father which really messed things up because i could have been the fourth and the name donald preston abernathy the fourth is not a name that you can put on a mailbox in front of a shack i was so close to destiny but Fell short one generation, so I started all over again with just Donald Preston Abernathy the first. <sighs> How are you? It's cold here in Florida. Yeah, so you're wearing a jacket, and I mean, we're kind of enjoying, I mean, it feels like December at least, right? The Christmas lights are up, Christmas trees are going, and you don't want it to be 70 degrees, and it, and it was the other day, but eh, we're hitting the 50s and 30s at night, so it's, I like it. For this time of year, it's, this is how it should be. You know, it's so funny because I grew up in Ohio and Kentucky and like growing up as a kid, you know, when it's negative four at the bus stop all year, then it makes it sweat to 50. Ooh, that's shorts weather. And so you'd be out the bus stop in the morning at 55 in shorts. It's currently 55 degrees here in Cape Coral. I got a wool line <laughs> 41 jacket on a t-shirt. There is a window behind me. The, the windows are actually open in my house, so we don't have the heat on. Um, thank gosh for that. But yeah, we're just... Uh, trucking right along and heads up i know it's hard to download every episode and let's do it in real time but the time is on the clock and the clock is on the time for the winner of the first patreon prize pick winner which we did at the end of uh november and that was joe schwartz you won the first print that we're giving away i sent a message to you on patreon so if you haven't done so log in your patreon account I just need to know that you're actively still around and uh, that I have the correct address because I don't want to send this wonderful print to whatever random lucky guy moved into the apartment after you. So simply just reach out to us on uh, Patreon, send us a message, say, hey, I'm here, I'm alive, here's my address, and we'll send it out to you just in time for probably New Year's Day. Um, if you guys didn't win, don't worry. We're going to do another drawing. Unofficially, I think we're going to shoot for maybe beginning of February because December's half over. We want to give people time to sign up. And our next print is another one from uh, donated by Mr. Henry Sledge. This one too is from the Valor Studios. It's entitled Off the Line. It's by Gil Cohen. Um, the description of this one, it is September 25th, 1944. Is the Marines of King Company, K-35, file past Palau Airfield, 10 days after landing on the island's bloody beaches. They enjoy a brief reprieve from the fighting in the heat. In the days prior, they helped capture a very, I'm sorry, they helped capture this very landing strip, the campaign's main objective. And just a quick preview, we will take a nice photo like we did with the last one and post it on all our social media. This is very reminiscent of the scene in the series where you see them all walking down the line and they're beaten and worn and their uniforms are all tattered and torn. A very iconic image you can now have your very own print from Valor Studios. Go out and uh, get it put in a nice frame and hang it up in your your library, your room, wherever you keep all your World War II stuff. 
the living room if your wife will let you. It's a very beautiful print. And that could be yours. All you have to do, sign up for Patreon. Head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. When you go there, you'll see a red Patreon link in the corner or orange if you're not colorblind like me. Uh, click on that, sign up. Choose any one of the three plans. Just got to be a red active subscriber. You can choose the $1.50 plan, the $3.50 or the $7.50. Um, Jeff was had forgotten. I know he's aware because we talk about it all the time, but he was surprised. Yes, if you sign up, maybe I don't talk about it enough, but the rule's always been in place, and I've given out a handful of these. If you sign up for the $7.50 a month plan after your second month, I will reach out to you via Patreon. Anything, any giveaways, any prizes, anything we do through Patreon, will communication will be through Patreon. It's our only way to truly identify you as the member. Um, but yeah, I will reach out to you through Patreon, send you a link to our store, say, hey, pick a shirt, pick a color, pick a size, let me know what it is, and send me your address, and we'll get those ordered and send that out to you. So if you want a free t-shirt after month number two, it's kind of our way of thanking you as being the top-tier subscriber, which to be honest with you, I've seen some of the top-tier subscribing prices on a lot of other Patreon pages, and I don't feel guilty about 750 <laughs> I was watching this YouTube channel, guys like, our top-tier, $500 a month, I'm like, What? Okay, seven fifty. We're doing good. So yeah, seven dollars fifty cents a month. After month two, we'll get you a free shirt. But you can sign up for a dollar a month plan, and you'll be entered in. And as we did this time, at the end, uh, beginning of February, we'll print out all the names as long as you're an active subscriber, and we'll dice them up and we'll pick away. Jeff and I are trying to because we want to stay the nice guy. We don't want to be. <laughs> You know, someone's mad because we didn't choose their name. So we're going to pick some random poor person in our environment, make them do the drawing so we're innocent. They will do the drawing of the name, and then we'll reach out to you guys and help you out. Um, Jeff has a friend who sent us some very cool stuff, and we have a limited supply of a certain item, which I thought maybe we could use as a feeler, see what the interests are, and if they sell, then we'll get some more made on a, on a mass scale, but there's no reason to order boxes of stuff that they're just going to sit around. So Jeff, do you have one handy? If not, I do. You want to describe what we're yeah, looking at here? Yeah, there you go. So it's, uh, it's not only a good buddy of mine, but a brother in arms. It was somebody I served with with Fox uh, years and years ago. He was a young PFC when I remember him, uh, but now he's a retired sergeant first class out of the <laughs> Army, retired as a uh, recruiter in the San Antonio area, got into some laser engraving. And so like Don's up there, it's it's about the size of a credit card. Mm -hmm. uh, nice thin metal, uh, powder coated, kind of, it's hard to scratch. I mean, that's scratch resistant, I guess. I mean, yeah, hypothetically. Um, really... Yeah, it's really slick. So it's just a really cool bottle opener yep. uh, with our logo on it, with WTSP, with the five-year logo on it. And, um, yeah, he just kind of donated a bunch to us and said, hey, man, here you go. And just kind of a, a gift to the to the podcast and see what we can do with them. And These are I perfect for and, camping, yeah. fishing. You know, obviously, you're probably not going to put a steel can opener in your wallet and sit on it because it's going to hurt. But these are like perfect for like camping, fishing, anywhere, not only for beer bottles, but for like Mexican Cokes, the Mexican Fanta, a lot of the stuff that's not twist off, you need a bottle cap for. How many times have you gone out and got tacos and get that bottle and you walk out like, oh, is there a picnic table I can smack the edge of this thing on? 
got a lot. I can't tell you how many gas stations I've gone to and, and bought the uh, Coke in the non-twist-off bottle cap, and the gas station doesn't have a bottle opener. So you're once again you're outside looking for something to smack it on. No one smokes anymore, so it's not like you got a lighter to pull out of your pocket. So throw one of these in your glove box or in your tackle box or your your camping bag. So when you, you and the family are out or you and friends are out and you got a beer on the fire or once again a a glass bottle without a twist off, Bob's your uncle. Perfect. And so we're going to put those up on the website here in about a week, weekish or so. And uh, we have a limited edition. We're going to put a uh, put them up there, make them available for purchase, and go from there. And once again, if we sell out of them, then we'll uh, consider ordering more. While we're waiting on our guest Dennis to uh, sign in, let's do a mail call. This is almost, uh, it's getting that time of year again, and this happens occasionally. It's always a surprise when it does. But we have a mail call that includes more. So, Jeff, if you don't mind hitting up that mail call. Yeah, so it says here, uh, hi, Don. I'm sending you guys a package from Pearl Harbor. Just confirming new, uh, new mail address, and I won't read that out loud. Uh, but she was uh, confirming uh, Don's mailing address and just checking because I thought last year I sent it to Del Prado or something like that. Yeah, we moved our office address <laughs> yeah, for the Digital 410. So the address that is on our website, is, which is the address she was verifying, is in fact the current address. Perfect. So it uh, says here, walking to local Honolulu post office now. Hope the address is correct. Thank you, Miss Rona Bushbaum. And is that the package? Yeah, the package showed up today, and now I'm getting warm, oh. so I'm going to take my M41 off. So we got the package here, and inside the package, I didn't open up these guys, but I did open up the envelope because I wanted to know what I was reading before I read it on the air. Do 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 do. Nice. There's something nice about a handwritten correspondence, especially in the world of email. Perfect timing. One second. Dennis Blocker is going to join us as we're reading this. Handwritten correspondence, which I can't open. Don, Jeff, and Henry. Yesterday I attended the 82nd commemoration of the December 7th attack held at Pearl Harbor National M Memorial here in Hawaii. This year's theme was Legacy of Hope. While there, I picked up a little something for Christmas. Nothing fancy, just a small appreciation for your podcast. Don, I do not have Jeff and Henry's mailing addresses. Can you please forward these packages along with the next time you're sending something their way? Happily do so. Jeff, my son and I visited the National Museum of the Pacific War in June and made a detour stop to the Highlands Lake uh, Squadron. A nice guy named Dave, question mark, took us around and let us board the Texas Zypher C-47. Wow, the collection of World War II aircraft on display is great. Uh, with some really unique finds. Nice work. Henry, keep on plugging away at the book. Uh, can't be easy. I know you want to get it done just right. Uh, sign me up to purchase a copy when it is released. Sincerely, Rona. So thanks so much. And uh, check us out. Okay, so I'm just going to open one of these. So we got one with my name on it, one with your name on it, and one with Henry's. I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm going to assume they're all the same, but I'm not going to take it upon myself to open up your gift. So I'm going to open up the one that has my name on it and see what's in this bad boy. Do, 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 do. We got us the Pearl well, Harbor. We're waiting on that. Welcome, Dennis. Welcome, Dennis. How you doing, fella? Yeah. Welcome to uh, all right. Mail call. <laughs> so we got ourselves a nice uh, Pacific Historic Parks bag, and inside. 
Oh, that's very cool. That's awesome. The USS what is it? <laughs> USS Arizona. Check it out. It's USS Arizona BB thirty nine in port. Beautiful. It's a Christmas tree ornament. See, Christmas was a special time for sailors aboard USS Arizona. Since 1916 through 1940, the celebration of the Joyce event was something that the officers and crews prepared for and celebrated. As the clouds of the war gathered in the Pacific, many of the sailors would be prepared for Christmas. I'm sorry, many of the sailors would prepare Christmas cards and gifts for their loved ones on the mainland. But Christmas never happened aboard the Arizona in 1941. She was lost in the opening moments of the attack on Pearl Harbor. For those who got their cards and gifts anyway, these were the last um, tactile memories of the families and their loved ones. This ornament is a gesture of that Christmas remembrance for all the fallen crew and all the fallen crew and of a grateful nation. So that's very cool. And then she has included multiple other artifacts from the museum. Dennis, sir, how are you doing, friend? And I'll get this, um, I'll get yours and Henry's mailed out to you here this week. Doing and, good, doing good. It's good to be with you guys. It's been a little bit. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, thank you for the invite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we uh, we we love and we and we miss Henry, but we're we're also you know cognizant of the fact that uh, usually a trio makes for. Yeah, sometimes a more entertaining, um, you know, uh, hour or so that people spend with us. And because we appreciate, you know, them taking the time to download and listen and whatever they're doing. And um, but, you know, three minds, I think, from coming from three different sides, uh, I think is just a more enriching experience for the listeners. And I think Don agrees as well. And um, we don't know when. If Henry will come back, but you know, and hopefully we do. But again, the project that he's doing right now is it's 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 paramount. It's monumental. <laughs> it needs he needs that time. Um, so uh, yeah, Dennis, you know, we've we've always had some great feedback. You know, when you're on our show, and and uh, it just kind of helps complete uh, the mission, as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you. Your internet's lagging out on it's me. It's always good to be with you, fellas. There he is. Here. It got back up. So last week, Dennis, we were, we talked about the the setup, the logistics, and the first attack on Wake Island. So this week, we're going to kind of pick it up there on the uh, second attack. But I figured today's uh, December 11th as we're recording this. Hello? I had some audio coming in through there. Yes, so as today, as we're recording, this is December 11th, but most people will be listening to the episode on December 12th. So I thought, even though this is technically part of the first part of attack, we'll roll back a little bit to December 12th. So uh, just to rewind a little bit, kind of like when you watch that next episode of the sitcom, they kind of give you a preview of what happened on a previous episode. So we're going to go there. The next day, December 12th, 1941, began with the bombing raid by Type 97 Mavis which was shot down by a wildcat. Later in the day, 26 G-32M Neils attacked. Uh, the Wake Defenders shot down one Nell and damaged four more. News of the battle reached the United States mainland, which unfortunately broadcast news reports that the garrison on Wake Island was, quote, very small. 
on Wake, they could hear the broadcast, which was a bit of disconcerting that their size was now revealed to the enemy and that there was no resupply yet. A Wake resupply mission was under planning but was held back by the lack of available ships due to the Pearl Harbor attack. Finally, the Navy War Planning Office made a breakthrough. They realized they, that if they converted the seaplane tender and that the people on Wake took no possessions, they could squeeze everyone into it, even 1,500 people. So that was kind of which way they were going before they could uh, get anything off the ground, um, if you will. And so that's going to bring us to about December 23rd because there was a span of about 12 days that was just um, 15 days from the first attack uh, before the second attack on December 23rd where it was just nonstop air raids and bombing, which in and of itself, you know, we kind of talked about last week, Jeff, we often wondered what it was like on Peleliu and Tarawa pre-invasion for the Japanese who dealt with days and hours on end of just naval barrages, but our guys on Wake Island kind of suffered that from both aerial and naval ships. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's um, important to kind of point out that at this time, though, um, you know, if we go back, like we, like you said, we kind of talked a little bit on last episode last week, uh, you know, initially it was victorious. And, and I think I told Dennis this earlier when I talked that anytime I kind of revisit the story of wake, you kind of get this false sense of hope that they're going to make it, you know, because it was such, um, an incredible, you know, uh, the way they repelled the Japanese on that, on that first invasion, I'm sure the Japanese were just absolutely appalled to see, uh, was a destroyer I think that was sunk within minutes and yeah two of them within two uh, yeah one destroyer within two minutes of the opening battle and as we discussed last week two minutes of the opening battle on what they thought to be an unprotected island but they just won their attack on Pearl Harbor and Guam the Philippines the 20 18 other 19 other locations if you count the other two so there's 23 locations that they attacked and were victorious over, not counting Wake. They go to Wake, and they lose a destroyer within two minutes of uh, fighting um, some Marines and construction workers and a few sailors. Just Right, and so, you know, I think it's important to, to kind of ponder a little bit here. Was there a conversation had with the Japanese brass saying, okay, you know, at, at what point do we pull the plug on this thing and just kind of bypass? I mean, we understand the strategic importance of, of Wake and Wilkes and Peel, right? Yep. Had, a, had a runway. It's an unsinkable aircraft carrier um, closer to Japan than it was to Hawaii. So, you know, but it, it still really gave you, to be. it still gave you very important mileage on your bombers back then. I mean, even. You know, 500 miles is 500 miles closer to the target. I mean, that's less fuel. That's like you're saying, it's closer to Japan than it was Hawaii. But even for J- J- Japanese, it could have been a reasonable desire to have because that's even closer. That's just another place to to stage equipment and, and aircraft. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was kind of the outer ring of defenses for us. I mean, that was the far, far ring, yep. you know, and then Pearl was kind of that inner ring uh, protecting the West Coast. So, but I mean, yeah, the the pummeling that they took from from a small contingent of Marines on that first attack. So, um, you know, it was technically at that time it was the first victory 
by the Marine Corps in, in the Pacific. And, and I think that, along with basically everything else about Wake Island, gets overlooked. Um, you know, the first Marine Medal of Honor is on Wake. Um, where's the airfield named after him? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, man, that's just, I mean, the story of Hammer and Hank, uh, and I don't know if there's another story where the guy was such an incredible pilot, but he gets a Medal of Honor for what he does on the ground as a ground-pounding Marine, and it kind of really, you know, it, it, it really kind of draws back to the to that old Marine Corps, you know, what's just drilled into them. They are a rifleman first and everything else mm-hmm. second. Even for the boys flying Wildcats in VMF 211, Hammer and Hank Elrod proved that, that he was an outstanding pilot and showed that he could take a 100-pound wing bomb and, and knock out some Japanese ships. And still be able to help coordinate and and properly fire, you know, bell-fed machine guns in active ground combat during an invasion. That just, where is that story? And where's a lot of the stories? I mean, it, it would seem like the Pacific Alamo has got to be probably, if not proven, but one of the most complete tellings of what happened all week. Because even when you like try to watch documentaries or stories on YouTube, most of them are 15 minutes. It's just it's usually the the quick talking points that was over you know 30 days and in and out. And um, Pacific Alamo, all three of us have it here. And there is Jeff and I have talked in the past. We love the first person account of these stories because it really brings to light what these men were going through and um, trying to find, here we go. Um, Bear with me. I just want to read something here momentarily. So this is during the first wave attack and the bombings. All able Marines rushed to help the wounded. Uh, Master Sergeant Andrew uh, Paskey, I'm sorry, Paskowitz injured in the right leg by shrapnel painfully hobbled around to the wounded and dying men at the airstrip and offered comfort. PFC Joseph E. Bohm pulled up to the airstrip in a truck in which to place the dead, but was not ready for what greeted him. Quote, at the airport, I have never before or since have seen such devastation. Dismembered bodies everywhere, planes on fire, the smelt of burnt flesh, moaning, groaning, and suffering everywhere. I I indebitably became sick and thought I will never stop throwing up. Bourne set aside his revulsion and helped others drag bodies to the truck. Some were so shredded by the Japanese bullets and bomb fragments that a man crumbled to pieces in their hands. Steam from the roasted bodies gagged Bourne, and one enlisted man's body contained so many bullet holes that they couldn't even grab a hold of him. They had to slide, they had to slide a mattress underneath his perforated remains and carry him to the truck in that manner. The carnage that this, just the bombing and the naval artillery caused before even a Japanese Imperial Marine stepped foot on the island is just tremendous and insane. And as we talked about last week, not only do you have Marines there, and yes, this is the Marines, this particular group of Marines' first combat, our first real combat in World War II. But when you're going through training, you understand you're training for combat, you're training for war, and you understand at some point you may see the sort of gruesomeness, not that you can prepare yourself for that. But then when you 
consider amongst those 400 Marines, you got 1,400 civilian construction workers who never even fathomed that that would be a possibility, let alone trained for it, to be put in that situation. And just literally have, and the title, the title is perfect for this book. It is the Alamo. There's no one's coming. You guys are, you're essentially out in the, in the wilderness, surrounded by natives and they're coming for you. And we just lost Dennis. Hopefully he'll come back in. But yeah, that's, uh, that's, it's really rough to, when you read it and try to put it through their eyes. Yeah, Dennis, since you're you know, right down there, close to um, what are your first thoughts when we, you know, what do you think as far as the title of the book and just the title of the battle in of itself? Wake was really the Alamo of the Pacific. Yeah, well, anybody that knows anything about the Alamo knows that <laughs> it's not a good thing when your position is called the Alamo. And uh, it means nobody's getting out alive. And um, but it also has a meaning that you're going to you're going to stand and fight like you're not just going to sit back and uh, delay. It's going to be to the last man. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I I just love that title. And um, what was that? Uh, have you guys seen this book either? Given up or dead? No, I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. So this one I read in like a day and a half. It, I just couldn't put it down. It's it's just riveting as well. But I, I just I remember watching the uh, when I was a kid. That was one of the first World War II movies I saw was the Wake Island uh, battle, and just that feeling of you look out to sea and there's just nothing. There's nobody on the horizon coming to help you. And there isn't anybody ever going to come and help you. And then that I, I, there's that submarine, right? That that leaves, and it's like, oh man, who gets picked? You know, mm-hmm. it's just that's just tough. That's just tough. And then the civilians, it's like, man, I didn't want to put me on the submarine. Why am I here? This is against the law for me to be here. And it's like, oh, that's that's rough. That is so rough. And from the commanding standpoint, Jeff and I were talking about this before we went on the air. After the first air raid, they lost, what was it, 12 of the 16 aircraft? Or, no, it was 9 of the 12? Eight, eight, uh, eight, yeah, of, the eight 12, of the 12. Yeah, 8 of the 12. They had four left. And Jeff and I were discussing one of the things that they had been promised far before the attack was this newfangled technology, this radar. We got this radar equipment here. It's getting ready to ship up. It's on the docks of Pearl Harbor. We're going to send it out your way. You know, you'll be able to detect anything coming within miles and a 360-degree radius of the island. Don't worry. This technology, it's its going to be a lifesaver. And never showed up. So what did they have? They had a water tower with two Marines with binoculars. Gave them a 15-second heads up. And so now, 80 aircrafts are destroyed. As they pointed out in the book, the not if there's not, obviously there's not a, a silver lining to being bombed, but where they kind of got lucky-ish is all the bombs struck all the planes in the exact same spot near the back of the fuselage. So none of the engines took any direct hit. And so now they had eight halfway decent engines to try to cobble together and either A, use on one of these four, or let's see if we can get a fifth one off the ground. But you're cut off. Your, your fuel dump guy hit on day one. It blew up. 
so what aviation fuel you have was not in the main dump. So you have a few, you know, barrels sitting around, but you have four planes left for the 15 second heads up. What do you do? You can't exactly fly them around all day. You're going to spend through all your aviation fuel. You don't want your last four planes on the ground. And so Cunningham decided he's going to basically send up a plane first thing, first thing in the morning, plane in the afternoon, plane around dinner time ish, and then right at sundown, kind of the times of the days that he would anticipate a bombing run or Navy coming in and try to try to get lucky, but you have to do it without expending what vital fuel you still have left to do it. And every second those things are on the ground, there's potential to get hit again. But once again, what do you do? It's like you got to balance your resources. Well, we had, we had radar at Pearl Harbor too. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what it is about newfangled technology? It, there's always promises they don't ever quite live up to. And so on, the second Japanese invasion force came on December 23rd, comprised mostly of the ships from the first attempt plus 1,500 Japanese Marines. Now, that doesn't really give you an idea of how much we're sending down their way, so let's break it down just a little bit. We got two carriers, 10 destroyers, one seaplane tender, one transport slash mine layer, 1,500 troops, all coming down. And as Jeff said, you got your ass handed to you on the first wave. First time, at least in this war, Japan has was dealt a loss. They're circling back around. Do we give up? Do we go back? Is it worth it? Well, we got all these vessels that just came back from their successful attacks on Pearl Harbor and all these other locations. Oh, and we hear this little news broadcast coming out of Hawaii talking about how smaller defenses are there. So let's go back. And they sent... I mean, it's it's kind of like when you watch the remake of, what was it, the Dirty Do- uh, the Ugly Eight or the Dirty Dozen or whatever, when they're just trying to protect that little small town and you just have all these cowboys and banditas coming down and just boom, boom, attacking one after the next. And they all landed on the southern bank down by the um, airport and splintered off. Um, and things got... Things got real rough real quick. The landing began at 2.35 after the preliminary bombardment of the Japanese landed at different points on the atoll. They were immediately faced by the resistance of the three-inch guns manned by Lieutenant Robert Hanna. Let's talk about this, too. So after the first attack and the 12 days, well, after the first attack and the bombing, you have these three. You have these three guns, which we discussed, were taken off an old World War One destroyer, and doesn't take much to figure out that that's going to be a target of opportunity at the next b- bombing raid. And so you have these Marines and these civilians surviving these bombing raids out in the heat, out in the sun all day. Their nerves are shook. They're worn out. They're tired. And at night they're saying, "Okay." Uh, Jeff, you take a squad of 10 guys, go tear down that gun. Dennis, you take a squad of five guys, go to where that gun was, build a fake gun out of cardboard and steel pipes and fill some sandbags. Every night they were moving these three guns around, replacing them with decoys so that the next morning when the bombing strikes came in, every one of the decoys got hit. But that's how we were able to 
fight during that 15 day period of nightly bombings, those poor guys were dismantling those guns and moving them every single night or every other night to new positions. And oh, by the way, newly acquired positions that hadn't been previously bombed, it's like playing Battleship. Every day you got one more peg or blown out trees and craters because there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of places to put this stuff to begin with because Wake Island wasn't known for its lush jungle. And so they're constantly moving the stuff around and trying to cover it up with camouflage to save it as much as they could. And that in and of itself has to be taxing and bad on morale. Can't sleep during the day yeah. and you're up working all night. Yeah, and, and I know it didn't take them long to, to figure out that you're not going to go sleep in the building. No. Because you may not wake up. So they're having to, they're, they're out there roughing it in the machine gun positions out along the beach. Um, they're cut on up with the coral because yeah, like you were saying, if they're anywhere near the guns, the decoys, anything that re- resembles a structure, it's getting taken out in this second phase of this attack where it was strictly just a, an aerial bombardment for days on end. So, you know, that's just, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 the uh that documentary i watched uh there was a guy god i'm trying to think of the exactly how he worded it but after spending so many nights out there by the runway when he finally got when he was taken prisoner and they put him inside one of the buildings he said i, I never realized how soft wood could be <laughs> from sleeping on the coral you know just on unbelievable just what these guys did and and so at this stage in the war the japanese didn't have anything resembling what we had, which we hadn't even used yet, which were going to be, you know, landing craft. And so the vessels that they had these two waves of their Imperial Marines on, they just, that was so important to get these guys on the beach. They just, they just ran them right into the beach and just offloaded. But during that time, they saw the guns and uh, the Japanese Marines bypassed the gun positions and they attacked the main airfield. Meanwhile, a company of Japanese Special Naval Landing Forces Marines landed on Wake Island. After heavy fighting, the Marines guarding the airfield retreated to the final line northeast of the airfield. A group of 100 SNLF Marines infiltrated the position and attacked it, causing the surrender of the island's garrison. The U.S. Marines lost 49 killed, 2 missing, and 49 wounded during the 15-day siege, while 3 U.S. Navy personnel and at least 70 civilians were killed, including 10 um, natives and 12 civilian wounded. 433 U.S. personnel were captured, um, and 98 of them were left on Wake Island to act as slave labor to do what the Japanese military needed done. And that in and of itself brings a whole other list of things to come up against the Japanese post-war. Right, yeah, the fate of those 98. Jeff and I were talking, so after the first attack, word gets back, hey, we're under attack, and um, we need to do something. we got to get something out there. So um, remind me again, oh, I went, so you had Cunningham and um, who was the other? Devereaux. Devereaux. And then who did we say got relieved? Well, you know, there had to be a fall guy for Pearl Harbor, yes. right? So Admiral Kimmel was sink pack at the time of the attack. And interestingly enough, um, I want to say that that position was offered to Nimitz, and he turned it down. 
because he was going to leapfrog several uh, other admirals for sink pack, and he didn't want it to get it that way. Uh, that's crucial because, I mean, obviously, uh, for those of you who know, uh, when Nimitz became sink pack, his contribution to the war, his leadership style, his just everything about that man as a leader was just crucial. Um, so had Nimitz accepted sink pack, then it'd be a whole different war, but, uh, it was offered to Kimmel and Kimmel took it. But of course, Kimmel had to be the fall guy, uh, among several others well, after the attack at Pearl. It, so it kind of makes sense. They'd make him the fall guy because on April 18th, 1941, Kimmel wrote to the CNO requesting, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Requesting additional resources for the base construction on Wake Island. Um, and for the Marine Corps to defense battalion to be stationed there as well. And so he was he was early in on Wake Island and, you know, trying to get this thing done. And so he was involved with it early on. And he actually was in, he's the one who came up with the plan. I think it was Carrier Force 14 and 11 to go out there, uh, leave California, stop at Pearl Harbor, get resupplied, get that gosh darn radar system to take out there. And get some more supplies, and I think they made it to five to three hundred miles away. And then, as Jeff informed me, Kimmel lost his post, and he had a replacement. Right. Yeah, and that happened on the on the seventeenth of December. So ten days after Pearl, uh, Kimmel's relieved of command, and so this is the part that I found fascinating. Uh, Nimitz was due to be the next sink pack. Uh, and that's kind of usually how the story is told. Kimmel is relieved. Nimitz becomes sink pack. The rest is history. Uh, but there's a 14-day period in there that's not accounted for. Um, Kimmel's relieved on the 17th. Nimitz takes over on the 31st of December. There's a middleman in there, and it was Admiral uh, William S. Pye. And... That's not all that interesting, except for the fact that what's happening in this 14-day period, the siege at the Pacific Alamo on Wake. Uh, so Pi's contribution as the ad hoc temporary sink pack until Nimitz gets there on the 31st when he's officially named sink pack. So Pi's and he's handed the greatest loss in naval history. Um and, oh, by the way, every other bastion has been taken uh, except for Wake. And uh, Kimmel, like you said, uh, was adamant in getting supplies out to Wake. In fact, I want to say, and Dennis, you may know as well, the B-17s, right, the famous B-17s that were supposed to be that radar blip at Hawaii coming in to refuel, were they not heading to Wake? Was that their ultimate destination? I'm not it was either Wake or Midway, and I, and I wasn't sure, but I, I thought maybe it was Wake. Hmm. I'm not sure. But we can uh, Don can look that up. So either way, um, we've got 14 days in here that ev the entire you know fate of the Pacific is handed to Admiral, Vice Admiral William S. Pye. And Pye was not as much of an advocate at sending help to Wake that Kimmel was. So... You know, your boss wants to do something, and now all of a sudden he's not your boss anymore, and you can go, well, I thought that was a dumb idea to begin with. I'm in charge now. Let's pull the plug. Well, let's give him a little bit That's of credit. Is You also just lost half your naval fleet, and you're sending two carrier groups down there making up probably 45 to 50% of what you have left. And you're like, 
is that worth the risk for that island super far away? Or should we take those valuable, valuable ships and protect our interests closer to our nation instead of risking them so far away? Because once they get out there, there's no one else coming to help them. So he, he, he also had to deal with that. Interesting fact, because you brought it up. What's the longest, what is, how far can a B-17 bomber travel on a bombing run with fuel? Or the full load? Mm-hmm. Just oh, loosely. Man. What's that? Just loosely. Uh, I want to say less than 2,000 miles. Um, let's see here. 2,810 U.S. gallons given in a range of about 2,000 miles. Guess how oh. far Pearl Harbor was from Wake? <laughs> oh. Just about dead nuts 2,000 miles. So it was just far enough that we couldn't we couldn't send any, you know, bombers out there or, or big B-17s. Uh, even if someone floated that idea, maybe we can bomb some. No. <laughs> you know, we get to Wake, but we can't go any further. And once we're there, they don't have any fuel to fly us back anyhow. So it's like, well, that's out. They're just dead nuts at exactly 2,000 miles. And so, and we saw what it took to get a B-24 Mitchell to fly off an aircraft carrier. Imagine trying to get a B-17 yeah. off of one. So that in and of itself wasn't an option either. And so, you know, Robert Leckie talked about it in a helmet for my pillow on Guadalcanal when uh, after the their what was it, George S. Elliott got sank and then the rest of the Navy pulled out, how the feeling of being left behind is so much more demoralizing than I volunteered to be here and I could possibly die. It's one thing to die for your cause and to die with your country behind you, but when you see everybody leaving you there, Wake Island, that they all had to have that same feeling except for they didn't see their Navy turn tail with the exception of you know the submarine and the... And the um, plane that left with all the remaining pan am you know civilians yeah and i and i think uh i'd like to kind of touch on what you'd said earlier too about sure. you know when you were uh when these guys were, were training for war right prior to 7 december i have a hard time believing that let's just say june of 1941 that we were really truly training for war i i I don't know if we were training for war any more in June of 41 than we were in June of 01. Sure. <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of those things that it's 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 always imminent. It's always kind of back there. But uh, it's, you know, it's not going to happen to me or, or you know what I mean? Like, I, I still feel, even with all of the tension yeah. going on in the world uh, and, and all of the, the failed, you know, appeasement, and all the nonsense and the isolation policies, all the stuff from the 30s that just really just abysmally failed as far as American policy was concerned and, and the Allies. I still find it hard to know that when, when, when General Marshall was handed the Army as chief of staff, that there was this huge like, okay, we need really stepping up on recruitment. We really we need to invest in all this new stuff and all these new technologies. I just feel like that really wasn't quite there yet. And it took something like Pearl and Wake and Guam and the Philippines and, and, and all that to really kind of give us a kick in the seat of the pants 
and well, wake Uncle Sam up. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Um, these weren't restrictions or financial cuts initiated by the military branches themselves. These were cuts made by the politicians in Washington post World War One and during the Depression and during the height of the isolationalist. And so, yeah, it wasn't, we're in combat now, let's get new technology. It's, we're in war now, let's try to get our fighting strength back to what it should have been during peacetime before all these cuts, and then we'll work on getting the extra stuff. Henceforth, why we relied so heavily in those early years on World War One equipment, because our numbers were so greatly reduced after World War One because no one, the whole concept of war was so painful after the war to end all wars that no one wanted to even entertain the idea of maintaining a battle-ready armed forces because, after all, as the name implied, it was the war to end all wars and people didn't have the stomach for it. And so we were so dramatically understaffed and techn technologically and manpower compared to where we should have been if it wouldn't have been from the laws and the, the financial cuts put towards our military. Yeah, absolutely. The The... the the Marine Corps that those guys joined that that were on wake, um, you know that was that was a military that's even in 1940, a year prior, Romania has a larger standing army than the United States in 1940. Dennis, I mean, let's as 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 armchair historians now, could you even imagine being in any type of command position in 1941, where you get this news? of Wake, Guam, and, and like Don said, 22, 23 different locations have all fallen under attack from the Empire of Japan. And then, oh, by the way, you know what? Let's say, let's just say Dennis Blocker. Let's say, Dennis, you're, you are now Admiral Pai. What do you do? Like Don said, I mean, do you, do you risk two of the only three carriers we've got in the Pacific for the sake of 400 Marines, 1,100 civilians? I mean, either way is the wrong answer. Like we know that, right? This is this is how command works. <laughs> you know, like it, it's never really a, a good. It's it's it. You know, it's bad or it could have been worse, I guess. But what are your what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I, I can't help but think that when you get to that level of command, there's a lot of politics involved. So you're probably a pretty good politician, and you have to know that history is being written. Right. And you just saw what happened to the guy ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And you have to know that you you are going to be written about and history, American history is being made, actively being made. And I, I just don't envy, like you said, that there was so many unknowns and just to all of a sudden be handed the keys to the car and say, OK, here you go. You know, here like just that's just crazy to even think about then there's also a part of me that says shame on them because it's not like the entire world was just suddenly thrust into war there had war had been going on since september of 39 and for 1940 and 1941 and they saw the german juggernaut and they saw what japan could do in china and 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 just be so and not as a commander on wake 
I would have seen the writing on the wall and I would have known, all right, I'm going to start training my guys. I don't care what the rest of the world, what the rest of the military is doing. And I'm going to do use the sources, resources that I have, and I'm going to make this as real as I can. I'm going to get my guys ready just in case something goes down because any officer worth his salt is going to be reading. He's going to be reading books about prior uh, battles. He's going to be reading the newspaper. He's going to be actively involved in what's going on in the world. He's going to be following Rommel's progress through Africa. He's going to be reading about what Montgomery is doing, and he's going to be following all of these other uh, fellows. And he's going to be looking at this is like free education, right? He he gets to learn from all these other people making these mistakes. So anybody, any officer worth his salt is going to be taking advantage of all of this stuff going on him. And then he's going to realize that, okay, look, <laughs> you have to see the writing. You have to know it's a very good possibility that we are going to be drawn into this. So I need to get my guys ready. And as we discussed last week, I think out of the plethora of the 1,145 civilian contractors, um, about 400 of them decided to participate. And as we discussed last week, it was a hard decision because the Marine commanders, Cunningham and um, oh, Devereaux, they really couldn't force them to fight because as Dennis applied earlier, legally they weren't supposed to be. They're not under contract with the military. If, if they fought with the military and then lost, they could have been executed as guerrillas because they weren't official members of the Marine Corps. And so 400 of them volunteered to learn how to use you know, the machine guns or help load the uh, three-inch guns. A lot more of them just did like uh, sandbag, more construction stuff. But I was reading before the show prep tonight that during the second battle, you had the you know, 400 of these 1,145 civilians, roughly about 400 of them spread across the island. And um, Cunningham later wrote in his diary that, uh, or no, uh, Devereaux later on wrote in his diary that these civilians fought just as hard and just as strong, and he would have been more than pleased to refer to them as any as a Marine because they fought so strong. But other some of the other enlisted Marines were wondering, why we only have 400 of them? The rest of them are hiding in the, in the quote-unquote, the brush. And I was reading one of the survivor civilians who were, quote-unquote, in the brush. He said they were told, you know, the 400 people who had the pre-training who already volunteered prior to the attack, when they all went to their battle stations, the rest of them were kind of, at least they claim, were told by whatever NCO, retreat to the brush, stand by if we need reinforcements, we'll send for you. And no one ever sent for them. So a lot of people are saying, well, the ones who didn't actively fight were hiding like cowards. And a handful of them were like, we were doing what we were told. We were told to kind of fall back. You're going to be our reserves. Stay down, stay low. And, you know, we'll come and grab people as we need to fill the lines. And no one ever came because they were, I guess, as a whole, they were so overwhelmed with the, the Japanese Imperial Marines that one of the um, articles I was reading between the Marines, the Japanese Marines, and the bombardment, I guess the main communication lines to all the EE8 field telephones and the other communication lines, they got hit with the shrapnels, the grenades, the bomb. And so Devereaux's giving out all these commands, and no one's responded. And so 
I guess, during the height of the battle, instead of sending someone, hey, go check your communication lines, they just assumed everybody had been wiped out. And another theory I heard, whether it's true or not, I just saw it in, in another self-produced documentary, people claim that during the second wave, you got all this dust and fire and smoke, and it's hard to see. As Cunningham was looking out on the field of battle, he's just seeing Japanese flags all over the place. He's like, oh, shit, we're being overrun, and they're winning. They're, they all, these are all claimed landmarks. What he didn't realize is the Japanese had the tradition of what they call what the good luck flags. Their family members signed their flags, and the Japanese soldiers would attach them to the rifles as they're charging. And so the hypothesis this person was talking about is he's looking out and seeing all these Japanese flags thinking, oh, we're, we're, we're done. But it wasn't until after... Okay, my guys aren't answering my calls. I'm seeing Japanese flags all over the place. Clearly, we've been overran and there's no one left. Let's go ahead and call this thing off and try to maintain what we have left. And it wasn't until the smoke cleared and you start looking around seeing there's a lot more Japanese bodies laying around than there were Marines and civilians that some people claim that things were going a little bit better for us than we thought prior to our surrendering. But due to the lack of communications and seeing all these good luck flags flying around in the smoke and all that, that, you know, they thought we were losing quicker than we did. And that some people claim that's what led to a speedier surrender than if we would have had a communication lines and actually hear what's going on at these little outposts and hear, you know, losses versus casualties and all that. So it's hard to know, but that's another one of the stories that's been put out there. It's just, you know, yeah, I read that too. Yeah, they 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 so there's a, a a unit of Marines there. They were shocked that they they were surrendering. Like we're we're kicking their butts. Like what? Why are we? And it was that communications. You know, communications was down, and they had no way to tell anybody that. You know, we're actually doing some pretty awesome work here. But yeah, that's that's rough. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation where you thought for sure you were going to die. No. You, had to make a decision on do I carry on or um, I know Jeff has and and then of course there's that famous scene from Band of Brothers with uh, Spears um, looking at Private Blythe and but you know I, I very specifically remember and it's interesting Jeff you mentioned uh, June of 01 was anybody training I was in boot camp at Fort Lost in the Woods and uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri uh, in June of 01. And um, I was going to was in, uh, you know, basic infantry training and I'm going to be going to AIT to be a medic. And, you know, that there's no there's no war. And I was 25, so I was an old man. And, uh, you know, there's all these 17 and 18 year olds in Opeka Woods. And <laughs> uh, I remember the drill sergeants. They were they were just losing their minds, and because uh, these these idiots, you know, they were just not paying attention, weren't taking anything seriously. So the uh, company commander called uh, all of us, uh, called everybody in um, all the different platoons, and we go into this conference center, and the company commander comes in, and we'd never seen him before, and he's got this this clipboard with post-it notes all over it, and he he just tells all the sergeants, close the doors, you know, close all the doors, turn the TVs off, it's not right, so they jump. And we're all like, oh, crap. And he looks at all of us, and there's like 250 of us in there. And he said, as of 0800 hours this morning, 
China has invaded Taiwan. Units of the 101st have already been deployed. The Pacific Fleet is currently engaged in active combat with China. And like he's listing like all, all this stuff, right? He's like units in Korea are the, the uh, infantry units in Korea have been deployed. They're in active combat. Um, you all can consider yourselves graduated right now. Now, here I am right now. I'm a historian. I, I've already know about what, what the ramifications of China invading Taiwan means for all of us poor schmucks yeah. sitting there. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, oh, man. You know, we're just speed bumps. Like, the, we're gonna win, but it's gonna be two, three years from now. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I know. I'm just looking around at all this room of dead people. Right? <laughs> They're walking around. They have no idea. They're dead. And uh, I, I, it was really interesting because I, I just, I had already by that time, I had three years worked at trauma team at university. I had all that experience under my belt and had seen a lot of death by that time and. I just remember looking around and, and and just I was like, all right, well I'm dead, so let's 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 do this. Let's let's do the best we can. So we go back to our unit, right? And uh Drill Sergeant Sweetenberg comes up to me and, and there's another guy, he was twenty five, we we're both twenty five. He goes, Blogger. <laughs> he goes, These these privates have done lost their mind. <laughs> he goes he goes, You guys help me square these people away. Roger that, Joe Sergeant. So we, we were getting getting there. People forgot where their bunks were. They forgot where the room was. They they were crying like, "Man, block! I, I just signed up to this. I signed up for college money, and I thought I was gonna, you know." And uh, and I was like, "Look, this is the real thing. Like, what did you think? This is." But I, you know, I, I was smart enough to look over at the other at the other companies, and no, none of them were running around with their heads cut off like ours was. And I was like, okay. So um, anyway, you know, it's it's a really interesting what you when you said that, Jeff, because you know, no, <laughs> in 01, June of 01, no one was taking it seriously. The only difference was that in June of 01, Europe wasn't hadn't been in a combat for a year and a half, um, and I think that's kind of a big difference that that the guys there. But I don't know how I got off onto that tangent. But uh, sorry about that. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I just thinking about my personal experience, you know, of a one myself. Yeah, I was one of those seventeen, eighteen year old pickerwoods that you mentioned that had no <laughs> clue about anything. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I mean, it the whole September 11th thing happened. That was so like, what? No. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, yeah, this is not a drill. <laughs> super you know, serious. so. I still feel like I know I know the tensions and and our allies are already at war, like you said in Europe and and China's already been gone through and it, I still feel like the U.S. was like it's probably going to happen. Well, you know, probably soon. Ah, we'll deal with it then. <laughs> you know, like I still. But then there were there were people like you know Kimmel that probably that guy probably would have been an amazing leader had he not been a fall guy, right? I mean, we see that he had the forethought to to ramp up the task force to come from California, right? He truly seemed like somebody was not going to leave a garrison behind. Yep. And, and we never did again, right? We never did that. Um, we Yes, I get we kind of had to pull out of Iron Bottom Sound, 
um, you know, in the Solomons, uh, but only to re-engage. Um, you know, it wasn't like we just left the Marines on Guadalcanal, like, see ya, we're going to go to the next island. You know, obviously it wasn't like that. But, yeah, it's just I, I, December 7th, 1941, we hear FDR's voice. We think Pearl Harbor, Battleship Arizona, but I hope the last two episodes of our listeners, we've enriched them a little bit more um, because if you were one of those Marines on Wake, you would certainly want that name Wake to be remembered by the And like Dennis said, it's not that's not a good analogy. You know, that's never a good thing if the position that you're in is, is called the Alamo. Um but these guys deserve it, and and uh, and of course, those ninety-eight civilians that did stay behind become laborers that were, you know, eventually all mass executed. Every every single one of them, the ninety-eight civilians that were kept behind to work, uh, were 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 all executed on on wake. And of course, the admiral that took over the garrison, the Japanese admiral, was was hanged for war crimes, I believe, in June of forty-seven, and uh, that couldn't have come soon enough. Um, yeah. But, uh, so let me just give the details to the audience on that real quick. On October 5th, 1943, American Naval Aircraft Lexington raided Wake. Two days later, the Japanese Naval Command ordered the beheading of the American civilian workers who had caught stealing. He and 97 others had initially been kept to perform for, I'm sorry, to behead an American c- civilian worker who had been caught stealing. He, meaning the civilian worker, and 97 others had been initially kept to perform forced labor. Fearing the invasion, the Japanese commander ordered that all of them be killed. They were taken to the northern end of the island, blindfolded, and then executed with a machine gun. One of the prisoners, whose name was never has never been discovered, escaped, apparently returning to the site to carve the message 98 U.S. P.W. 510-1943 on a large coral rock near where the victims had been hastily buried in a mass grave. The unknown American was recaptured, and the Japanese commander personally beheaded him with his katana. The inscription on the rock can still be seen and is a wake landmark. And they have a beautiful photo of the rock. And so, yeah, they max ex- executed them because they they knew that we were coming back to take over the island, and they wanted to do what they did at the time. And so... And, and yeah, they were starving too. Yeah, the Japanese garrison by then was were absolutely starving. Yeah, not that that's a reason, uh, but, but I prisoners think are just another system. mouth to feed. So there is that. Yeah. And then this one out. The Navy announces that Wake Island is probably captured by the enemy, and now it is disclosed that fewer than four hundred Marines held Wake Island for at least fourteen days against heavy Japanese attacks. The Marines had twelve fighter planes and a small quantity of weapons. They were commanded by a 38-year-old Marine Major, James P.S. Devereux. They sank one Japanese light cruiser and three destroyers. They held out against 13 raids. And we want to thank each and every one of you for hanging out with us and supporting us on this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And I thought, what better way to go out than the words of um, former Wake Island prisoner Norman Sampson. I had, like the other guys, experienced a depression, and we had suffered through this dumb four years in Japan and China. And since we survived, we said, boy, we probably ought to try to make the best of it, all of us that had survived. We want to make the best of it. 
try to do something. Your life's too short. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>